and I was like, I believe you. Like, I feel it. You know, there's something wrong here. And I was like, let's just sing and like pray together and do all that. Mm-hmm. And we did, and but it didn't get any better. So we like called our elders. They, like, honestly, they they just thought that like we were trying to flirt or something and get them come over. And I was like, oh my gosh. On August 16, 2017, I left Wisconsin on a one-way flight to Salt Lake City. I had been called to be a missionary in the Texas-Houston-South mission, but missionaries don't go directly to their fields of labor. They first have a three to nine week pit stop in a place known as the Missionary Training Center, or MTC for short. There are actually MTCs all over the world, but the largest and most famous of them is located in Provo, Utah. A friend's relative drove me down from Salt Lake, and I entered what would be my quote-unquote home for the next nine weeks. The first day there, you get your iconic black name tag, personalized of course, and spend the rest of the time pretty much in shock. But like jumping into a cold pool, you get used to it after being in there for a little while. Days consisted mostly of language classes and teaching practice, with breaks for meals, exercise, and service around the center. The rigidness of the schedule meant that the majority of socializing was resigned to after 9.30pm, which was the time missionaries were allowed to go back to their living quarters for the night. Initially, I would use this extra time after dark to study the language I had been assigned because for the first few weeks I felt like I was just falling farther and farther behind every day. But around the third week, I was feeling more comfortable with the language and spent some more time talking to my roommates and the neighbors. Well, one night, about three weeks in, my five roommates and I were just chilling in our room and talking, when one of the guys started to tell a story with a familiar topic. Since being in the MTC, the one I had heard in the grocery store three weeks before had faded from my memory considerably, and I hadn't worried about it for a while. But my roommate was now sharing a story he'd heard from a friend. It wasn't just him, either. My other roommates took turns sharing these same kinds of stories told to them by friends and family members who'd served missions. I even shared the tale I'd heard just days before leaving. This whole experience didn't make me less creeped out, though. At this point, taking into account everything I'd heard from my roommates that night, it seemed more and more likely that my friend in the grocery store line had been telling the truth. Less than a month prior, I had just assumed that these kinds of stories were exaggerations or attributable to non-supernatural forces, the classic tree branch tapping a window or breeze blowing a door shut. Now, however, it appeared that not only were these accounts being lent more and more credence, but that they were frighteningly more common than I imagined they would be. What is up, you brave souls? Back for more of the Adversary Podcast. Episode 3 is here, and as promised, these episodes are going to get more intense. This episode is no exception. As we dive deeper into this subject matter, I don't know what we're going to find. It's a little bit of a journey we're on together. The series follows a weekly format, which means a lot of the time I may be recording an episode to be released this week, and I still do not yet have material for next week's episode. So every week is pretty much a mystery as to what new stories people are going to tell me. The greatest thing I've discovered during my search is that I've never heard it all. Every time I think I'm not going to find something new, I'm proven wrong. Every time I think I've found the limit as to what is possible in regards to the supernatural, the limit ends up not existing. The limit does not exist. Today's story is a good example of that. But first, before we get to an account set in the modern day, let's go back almost 200 years to a point in history where the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, which I will refer to henceforth as just the Church, was an infant organization. 
Officially established in 1830 in New York, the church initially focused missionary efforts close to home, sending missionaries to the Midwest in search of converts among the Native American tribes. Preaching to those along the way turned out to be more successful, however, and soon members of other denominations began to join the church. By 1837, and I am skipping over a lot of events that took place in those seven years, the church was headquartered in Kirtland, Ohio, and facing serious financial difficulties, leading to the apostasy of many members, which was obviously a disaster for the young church. The leader of the church at the time was Joseph Smith, the same boy who had prayed in the woods in 1820 and had been overcome by darkness. This boy was now a man and considered to be a prophet by members of the church. In addition to the prophet, the church had 12 apostles, some of whom had apostatized and turned against Joseph, branding him as a fallen prophet and no longer fit to lead. Amidst all the turmoil of 1837, there's this famous story in church history involving Joseph Smith and one of the apostles named Heber C. Kimball, who remained loyal to Joseph. On June 4, 1837, Joseph and Heber were both in the Kirtland Temple, which had been completed the year prior. Joseph came up to Heber and whispered to him that he had a solution to the current crisis the church was facing in Kirtland. Joseph told Heber to go to England and preach the gospel, or the message of the church, to the people in that land in hopes of gaining new converts. Heber obviously felt a degree of trepidation in being called as the church's first missionary to serve overseas. Luckily, though, he would not be going alone. Six other men were likewise assigned to England by Joseph and accompanied Heber on the mission. After arriving in England, the men's first destination was the town of Preston, where they had almost immediate success in attracting interest in their church, with many expressing a desire to be baptized. Now, pausing here, it sounds like a great account of how the church bounced back after trouble in Ohio nearly brought it down, and this is the place that the story usually stops. But in reality, it goes one step further. This next bit is actually my favorite story of its kind from church history, and part of the reason is because it's not told a lot. In fact, I've never heard this story told out loud. I've only read it. I'll paraphrase and quote from the church history in the Fullness of Time's book as I go, but here it is. On the morning of July 30th, 1837, Heber C. Kimball and the six other missionaries were getting ready to go out and perform the first baptisms in Preston. These would also be the first baptisms performed in the nation by representatives of the church. But the day was off to a troubling start. One of the missionaries, named Elder Isaac Russell, came to Heber C. Kimball and told him that he was, quote, seeking relief from the torment of evil spirits. So Heber and another elder, Elder Orson Hyde, went to place their hands on his head to administer a blessing and hopefully cure him of whatever was going on. I will read the rest of the story word for word straight from the book. Here it is. As Elder Hyde and Kimball laid their hands on him to bless him, Elder Kimball was knocked senseless to the floor by an invisible power. As he regained consciousness, he saw his brethren, the other elders, praying for him. Heber wrote, I then arose and sat up on the bed, when a vision was opened to our minds, and we could distinctly see the evil spirits, who foamed and gnashed their teeth at us. We gazed upon them about an hour and a half. I shall never forget the vindictive malignity depicted on their countenances as they looked me in the eye, and any attempt to paint the scene which then presented itself, or portray their malice or enmity, would be in vain. When I read this story for the first time, I was blown away. Here was a supposedly authentic account of people being attacked by an otherworldly force. There's even a picture in the church history book of the very house where this whole event took place. I'm not sure if it's still standing today, but it was located on St. Wilfred Street in Preston, England. I'll post a picture of the house on our Instagram page so everyone can view it. But how had I not heard of this before? I'd heard the Joseph Smith in the Woods story tons of times, but never this one about the missionaries in England. Maybe because it's on a different level. For Joseph, his tongue was bound by the darkness or whatever it was surrounding him. But Elder Kimball was literally knocked unconscious by some hidden being. And then everyone in the room was actually able to see the spirits not long after. 
Although vague, this account contains one of the only, if not the only, documented description of an evil spirit. According to Heber C. Kimball, the spirits seem to possess, no pun intended, some human characteristics, having faces and teeth at the very least, although those aren't attributes unique to humans. In all my researching and interviewing I had done up to this point, I had never come across a full, detailed description of a spirit's physical appearance. It's just a bunch of bits and pieces flung here and there. Remember last week's episode about the sister missionary who saw the man behind the elders? After I finished reading her story, I sent her a text with my first follow-up question. That question being, what did the man look like? This was the focal point of my curiosity. Did the man look like a monster? Did he have hooves or horns? Or did he just look like a normal person? What was the color of his skin? Did he have skin? Or could you just see right through him? But forget all that. The most important question I had, and the most pressing question anyone would have, is... What did his face look like? Everything I wanted to know could be consolidated into that one question. I waited for a response, and I got one. She said, I never saw his face. It wasn't clear. But I could see that he was wearing old clothing, and I could tell from his form that he was a man. Although, of course, I wanted more details about this man and his appearance than were available, the sister story still provided brand new insight into these spirits. He wore old clothing. Okay, I guess I always assumed that evil spirits weren't naked, but here was a witness to back that assumption up now. Also, gender. The sister had said she saw a man, so it seemed reasonable that there are evil female spirits as well. In another parallel between the two stories, one old, one new, and both set in Europe, the spirits made physical contact with the people involved. For the sister, something held her back as she tried to enter her mission president's home. And for Heber, it was the sucker punch delivered by an unseen entity. But in both instances, those present were left with no exterior evidence that they had been assaulted. I thought that made sense. I had always supposed that when it came to physical harm these beings were able to inflict, there is a predefined boundary that can't be crossed. But recently, I discovered that that boundary could be pushed even further than I thought possible. In my search for stories of encounters between missionaries and the supernatural, I quickly ran out of friends. The few that had stories had told them, but I still needed more. So I expanded. I started asking random strangers on dating apps if they had spooky experiences from their missions they'd be willing to share with me. Yeah, I know, kind of strange, but oh my gosh, did the floodgates open. Of course, there were many that did not feel comfortable talking about it, and I totally understand. Some people don't want to relive what are often the scariest moments of their young lives, and I was not about to force anyone to do something they didn't want to do. That being said, there was still a good number that would be like, you've come to the right place, what do you want first? Black magic, ghost phone calls, hearing voices, to which I'd reply, all of the above hit me. And that was my May of 2020. During this month, I came across one account in particular that's relevant to this episode. I got in touch with a girl who served in the Missouri-St. Louis Mission. For those that don't know, the naming convention for missions is to say the state or country first and then the city. This return missionary told me in response to my question that for a period of time on her mission she had lived in an apartment she believed was haunted. I was intrigued and set up a time to meet with her and get the full story. So a few days later we sat down at a cafe Rio and I ate and took notes while she talked and of course after she was done I let her eat too, come on. But here's the experience she shared with me. At one point in her mission, this sister was serving in Illinois in a town called Edwardsville. The Missouri-St. Louis mission boundaries extend beyond just the city of St. Louis, covering additional parts of Missouri and sections of Illinois. She had been living in an apartment in Edwardsville with two other sister missionaries for six weeks now with no issues. Transfer day was right around the corner. Remember, that's the day when missionaries are rotated around the mission. On transfer day, both of this sister's companions were moved to different areas, and she remained in Edwardsville. A new missionary was sent to her and they became a companionship of two, staying in the Edwardsville apartment. From the way this girl described it, this was no ordinary apartment. 
It sounded more like a penthouse, to be honest. It was split level with an upstairs and downstairs and had couches, a luxury for some missionaries, and a piano. A real one, not just a keyboard you plug into the wall. The kitchen, bathroom, and study room were on the first floor and the bedroom was on the second. According to her, it was one of the nicest apartments in the mission. And let me tell you, the quality of your housing can have a drastic effect on the quality of your mission experience, for good or for bad. For these sisters, it seemed like everything was great. And for the past six weeks before the new missionary came in, everything had been. But just like companionships on transfer day, things were about to change. The girl I was currently with at the Cafe Rio recalled the first day she noticed things were off. And ironically, it's because something was on. The sister walked down the stairs from the bedroom one day to the bathroom on the lower level and found something strange. The sink was on in the bathroom. She turned the faucet off and simply chalked it up to a minor plumbing issue or her companion maybe just forgetting or not turning the handle all the way. Like, people do that sometimes and don't realize it. Anyway, faucet off now, problem solved. For a few days. Within the week, the sister's companion walked into the bathroom to find the same thing the sister had. Water running in the sink, apparently not shut off after being used. The companion turned off the faucet and mentioned later to the sister that the bathroom sink had been on. Now the sister could only assume that there was indeed a problem with the plumbing or faucet itself that was causing water to come out at random times. This was the only explanation, right? The girl told me that from that first week onward, the sink would continue to occasionally turn on, seemingly by itself, but they would just turn it off if it happened and not give it much thought. And besides, despite being a bizarre apartment quirk, it was just the sink, and everything else was working fine. The piano, for instance, was perfect. This sister had been a piano player since a young age and was grateful to have one in her apartment to practice on, which she did almost every day. Well, one day, she sat down at the piano and began to play some song, probably church-related, just like she'd done a bunch of times before. While she was playing, she felt someone blow on her ear. She jumped. Immediately, she stopped playing and looked behind her. Nothing. She scanned the room for her companion and then heard noises coming from upstairs. Her companion was on the second floor, and had been the whole time. This sister was now, for the first time, becoming concerned that something wasn't right here. She had felt someone or something blow on her ear, loudly. It was real, she didn't just imagine it. But there was no one else in the room. A sense of unease started to set in for the sister, and she was no longer as comfortable in her own home as she used to be. Days passed, but this feeling didn't. Until one night, sometime in the middle of the night, as she lay sleeping, her bed began to move. As she became fully conscious, she thought her companion had sat at the foot of her bed, causing it to rock. But when she finally opened her eyes as she lay facing up, someone who was not her companion was there in the room. Hovering above her was a girl. The sister screamed, startling her companion awake. The girl over the sister's bed disappeared as the screaming continued. The companion, now awake, tried to figure out what was going on and console the sister. At this point in the story, I was listening intently, but I had my doubts. I said, wait, I've heard of this thing called sleep paralysis, and it's where you can't move, but you think you see someone, and it's scary. I've even had it once. I thought I saw the shadowy outline of someone standing over the side of my bed one night. Do you think you might have just had sleep paralysis instead of a haunted apartment? And without a moment's hesitation, she replied, the bed was shaking. That's what woke me up. I was asleep, my companion was asleep, and my bed was moving. I don't think it was sleep paralysis. And I kinda had to agree with her there. Besides an unlikely earthquake, I couldn't think of a good explanation for what had happened in her story. But her story wasn't over. After that night, the sisters called their district leader. 
an elder who served as the leader covering the Edwardsville area. Missionaries are usually encouraged to reach out to their district leaders if they have any problems they need help with, just because they're local. The sisters told the district leader about what had occurred the previous night and about the other odd events, like the sink and the piano, preceding it. After explaining their situation, they asked the district leader and his companion to come and bless their apartment, in hopes of fixing the problem if there was one. The district leader just laughed. He didn't believe that their apartment was haunted or that they had anything to worry about. He told them that their place didn't need to be blessed and that they'd be fine. The sisters, especially the girl I was now talking to, were understandably frustrated. What they had been experiencing lately certainly didn't seem normal, but there was nothing they could do at this point except wait and see if whatever was happening would just go away. Eventually, six weeks passed since the last transfer day, and it was transfer day again. The sister who was now telling me the story got her transfer news, and she was leaving Edwardsville and the apartment behind. She was going to a different area in the mission. She was relieved that ever since the incident involving the girl floating above her bed, nothing else out of the ordinary had taken place. That transfer day, she shoved her belongings into a car and left Edwardsville for good. But of course, missionaries are always in companionships. A new sister missionary came to Edwardsville as her replacement, forming a companionship with the other sister who stayed in the area. This new sister now slept in the same bed the sister who had just departed had slept in. The same bed where the last sister had awoken to see a girl hovering in the air. I'm not exactly sure how much time passed next, maybe some days or even a few weeks. But one morning, this new sister awoke not to find anyone above her or shaking the bed, but found instead something on her arms. Scratches. Choosing not to try again with their district leader, they called a member from their ward to come and bless their apartment. He couldn't make it to them that day, so that night they slept in the study room on the lower level. The next day, the apartment was blessed, and that's where the story ends. My initial reaction to learning that one of the sisters had scratches on her arms was surprise, obviously. I didn't think that that was possible. I believed that spirits really shouldn't have the ability to touch in the first place. They're not corporeal. They lack substance. They shouldn't be able to make physical contact. But time and time again, I'd read and heard accounts to the contrary. And this latest one was especially eerie, setting a new precedent for the extent these interactions can go to. I wasn't sure what had left those markings on the sister's arms, but the sister who had told me the story thought it had something to do with the floating girl. After all, the sister was sleeping in that same bed when it happened, and they didn't get the apartment blessed until later. I asked about this spirit girl. What did she look like? Did you see her face, etc.? The sister was only able to describe her hair, which floated as if she were underwater, and the rest she couldn't recall. That was fine with me, though. She had told me more than enough already. If you have a story you'd like to share, send an email to theadversarypodcast at gmail.com or send us a message on Instagram at theadversarypodcast. The Adversary Podcast is hosted by me, Ethan Lars. Everything except for the accounts were written by me, including the main theme. A special thanks to my friends, old and new, that contributed the stories to this episode. Thank you for listening, and we hope we didn't scare you away.